Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for March of 2013. I am writer-critic, hyphen, rest in peace, Marzipan, the cat of the Astor Theatre. 21 years, it was a great run, we will miss you. And with me as always is... Hi there, yes, an R.O.P. Marzipan, very sorely missed. Um, I am a writer, hyphen director, hyphen crowdfunding sensation, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest. Hello, I am Kate, hyphen Wolfswinkle, hyphen Wolf, actor on hyphen Dr. Blake Mysteries. <laughs> Cavalier with those hyphens. I was going to say, <laughs> just, just throwing them around. <laughs> Uh, rest in peace, Marzipan. Lovely cat. Lovely cat. Oh, hang on. No, Kate. No, hang on. I was going to do a whole pun thing there, but it didn't work. Um, on very, very limited release. It looked like it was almost going to go to DVD at one point, but it's just snuck out into one or two cinemas. I don't even know how many. I think it's exclusive, actually. Exclusive to in Nova, yeah. In Melbourne. Well, there you go. One cinema is Gus Van Sant's Promised Land, his atonement for Restless. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm actually surprised. This didn't do very well in the States. Um, it's kind of been, you know, as we say, just sort of dumped into one cinema before going to DVD here. It's kind of baffling because I, I found this such a great story. And it it's about, uh, was it the coal seam gas and, the, and coming into a small town, big corporation trying to convince them to do it for economic reasons. And it's It gives both sides. It gives both sides. The kind of really the quote-unquote bad guys are kind of the leads yeah. in this. Yeah. Well, I, I loved it. And I, I, I think part of the problem was when I first read the blurb about it, I, it didn't seem very appealing, to be honest with you. When you just read it straight on paper, it's like, oh, I don't know about that. But watching it, it was freaking awesome like mm. I loved it I thought it was like a really good Euripidean Greek drama where it's it's incredibly you know it's about two opposing arguments but both sides make a hell of a lot of sense mm -hmm. and it's really hard to find the bad guy but at the same time you know you've got these characters who are fighting for the best outcome and it's not it's not simple it's not and it's such a it's not just a contemporary kind of, you know, issue in terms of, you know, the environment and natural gas but and, and corporations, but it's it's really quite timeless. Mm. It's just it's sort of a new kind of issue. But I mm. thought that it was done in such an amazingly sophisticated way. And I thought, yeah, there was really, really, really interesting um, use of rhetoric and, you know, having the school teacher in it who was, I think was Hal... Hal Holbrook. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was like it was kind of you know he was like the member, like the, like a Greek chorus. You know, he was yeah. he was you know the member of the town, and and I yeah I thought it was well he's the conscience of the movie really isn't he yeah mm. um and it beautifully done um and uh, as you say it's I, I love the fact that everybody in this film thinks they're doing the right thing mm. yeah and I mean that 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 line all the time you know I'm not a bad guy I'm not a bad mm. guy. Mm. Nobody thinks that they're the bad guy. Everybody has, you know, even even um, Francis McDormand's character who, you know, it's just a job. It's just a job. Yeah. What I do is just a job. You know, everybody can justify. She's doing it for her son. For her son. Yeah, that's such a human angle on, you know, who who would normally be the, the coldest character in the mm -hmm. film. Yeah. yeah. I'm just that busy. I, wanna, I really want to um, commit heresy and invoke the name Capra, because I felt this is... Because you know how uh, when we were talking about Darabont, we talked about how the Majestic was like... He was desperately... Darabont was desperately trying to do a Capra story today, but didn't quite work because he was just... 
it, it, was, it was too much of a facsimile. It was, mm. it was set back in that period and he yep. was really trying too hard. This one feels like if Capra was making films today, this is the sort of thing I think he would make. did have a little bit of a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington type thing yeah. about it. This or Mr. Of... Washington Goes to Small Town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should say it's the third uh, Gus Van Sant film co-written by Matt Damon. Um, the leads Matt Damon and John Krasinski wrote the film. Third after, after Goodwill Hunting and Jerry. Jerry, right, yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I think it's almost, I don't know, I, like there's part of me that thinks that this is better than both of those screenplays. I just think it's really succinct and it's funny and it's, mm. it's got it's these great incredibly, human... incredibly poignant as yeah. well. And, mm. it's, and I think it's one of Matt Damon's best performances just yeah, because it was just so beautifully done. Mm. And the writing is solid all the way through. The comedy is flawless. Mm. All of the characters are brilliant, and it's and it's wonderful. You know, it's got you know Gus Van Sant cinematography, so it's it's beautiful to watch. Mm. It's very elegantly put together, isn't it? And mm. it doesn't seem to really waste moments, and has this great momentum to the whole thing. And 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 yeah, eloquently expresses both sides of the debate. Mm. And you know, like I've worked in corporations in my life and I've known people like this, you know, people working for, you know, conglomerates like mobile and stuff like mm. that who are perfectly nice people yeah, and yeah. aren't, you know, Satan's minions, but they think they're doing the right thing in their corner of the world. Yeah. How freaking lefty are we? To, hey, people who work for mobile, not the devil. <laughs> <laughs> actually have human feelings. Yeah, actually human beings yeah, who are I, nice people. I think people. that's the great thing is, you know, like the global corporation in, in this story is, is, a, is a company called... Oh, is a company called Global. Yeah, <laughs> funny. <laughs> funny that. And it, it sort of seems like this kind of godlike, invisible sort of powers that be kind of presence, but the, the people who are there having to advocate it mm. are essentially just human beings. Yeah. And, and just a note on that, it's not so much a lefty thing. It's like you just don't see that in films because in films That's anyone true. that works with a corporation is the bad guy, has a shadowy agenda mm. and is kind of working everything. But, and it's the small-town folksy guy who has to overcome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think this film sure. works those, uh, tells this kind of story in a really fresh way. None of those things, however, can be said about a good day to die hard, which is the purest die hard film ever made. Okay. It is the purest. Please explain. Well, because the first one isn't a die hard, it's, it's based on a book. It was a book that was turned into a die hard film. The second one, based on a book, turned into a die hard sequel. Uh, the third one was. Uh, An existing screenplay called Simon, called Simon Says, Says uh, which was almost going to be a Lethal Weapon sequel at one point. Die Hard 4 was based on an article from Wired, which was turned into a script originally not intended to be a die hard sequel. Uh, so this is the first film that was written to be a die-hard film and is therefore the purest of the five. <laughs> All other films should be judged against that and we must now criticise the first die-hard film for not really matching the tone <laughs> of a good day to die-hard. <laughs> Counter-arguments, please. <laughs> wow. God, it's, it's such a pile of crap, though, isn't it? I mean, we came out of this film. Paul, Paul, Kate Paul and I came out and... Were like we had an argument at the, well, a, a debate about whether five was worse than four. It's kind of splitting hairs, yeah. <laughs> which is worse. But um, I have eventually come around. I I, I I thought five was worse, but it I, I've come around a bit. I think oh, four. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. Five is better than four. Look. I, as I described with Life of Pi a few months ago, it's very rare. It's usually once every two or three years I see a film that I want to physically punch in the face. Mm -hmm. Extremely rare. Die Hard 4 was one of those films. It seemed to really, really destroy all of my 
uh, illusions about John, the John McClane character, and it just seemed to kind of be on a mission to skull fuck the franchise in terms of character portrayal and what the Die Hard franchise to that point had been about. So in the end, um, the argument I was making to Lee Wood coming out of the theatre was Die Hard 4 was offensively awful. This was kind of endearingly awful. It's one of those, like, it's one of those awful, awful action films we've become used to, that everything's ridiculously unbelievable. Characters have one note, uh, actors have one note to play throughout the entire film. Look, I think some of the action is rather well directed. I, I, um, some of the chases in there were... were um, quite punchily done. Um, what was, some... Sorry, what was the relationship between Bruce Willis and Jay Courtney's character? I can't remember. Because they I don't just... really spell that out at any no. point. No. Basically, Bruce Willis has two lines in this film that he keeps saying over and over, I'm your father and I'm on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. I'm, I'm your, your father. father. <laughs> I'm, I'm on, on vacation. vacation. <laughs> As he shoots at someone else and then turns around to Jay Courtney, I'm your father. And then they, <laughs> and Jay Courtney's character is some kind of super spy that they're setting up for sequels. Like, it's it's... Utterly, they go to Russia. They wreck half of Russia. They go to, you know, they, they go to nineteen eighties Russia, which is really interesting. <laughs> this, this vision of America that they kind of got stuck what? in in nineteen eighty. Uh, sorry, this vision of Russia that America got stuck in nineteen eighty, which is the cab drivers, you know, dream of America, and all they know of it is Frank Sinatra singing "New York, New York," which we see in an extended five minute sequence of this guy. Oh, just singing to Bruce Willis. It is interminable. And and whereas the villains are these like Miami Vice Euro trash, you know, yeah, guys who, who who the only thing that Americans can think why why would people in other countries hate us is uh, oh you're cowboys, you're old cowboys. That's <laughs> it, the only criticism they ever have. But isn't that calling them cowboys just a protracted way to get Bruce Willis to say yippee ki again. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's just the whole excuse to that's get to another, that point. That's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. Look, there's a point in the film, one of our colleagues, uh, former uh, Hell is for Hyphenates uh, guest, uh, Anthony Morris, uh, co- commented on a scene early in the film where Bruce Willis is looking at a notepad that has all these notes sketched and his son's name pointing to where they need to go and basically inferred that that might have been the script that Bruce was reading on screen. I... Well, from the opening scene, which is uh, which basically word for word is, um, hey, your son's in Russia. Do you want to go rescue him? Yeah, okay. That's pretty much the opening scene. And to be honest, I mean, if you go back to the action films of the 80s that people love so much, like Commando and Rambo, First Blood Part 2, they're all like this. They mm. all have... The, the character, there's one setup. The characters have one thing to do for the next 90 minutes, wreck as much property as possible, and get to the end triumphant. Basically, we're in, a, we're in trashy 80s action film territory here. On that level, I think people who like that sort of thing will quite enjoy it. Anyone else will be pretty much repulsed. Well, okay, let me... People who like that, I would... Those films would like their action a bit edgy, a bit grungy. I would think they'd want a bit of uh, oomph to it. Do you remember the end of Lethal Weapon 4? <laughs> Which basically ends with a montage of the song We Are Family. Of photos. And you think, wasn't this about a deranged Vietnam vet? What happened to this franchise? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Good Day to Die Hard is basically the same thing. It basically ends on that, oh, and it's all about family. And that's the thing, yeah. The tail lights of John McTiernan's original are well and truly faded by this point. Mm. We can't see where we started anymore. John McClane is so removed from the character he was in the first three films that it's kind of it's it's almost yeah. a different franchise. It's it's changed along with the haircut. The original Die Hard is one of my all-time favorite films. Mm. If I put this alongside Die Hard, I just want to cry and I, it just makes makes me horrified for how much this 
alleged franchise has regressed. But yeah, I'm only giving it credit because it's better than the last one. But that thing you were saying about, or that Tony was saying about, like the script just being like a few notes scribbled on the back of a thing, is also how I felt about Oz the Great and Powerful. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It really, it had one of those scripts, which is like, it, it's not like scenes are written. It's like they've just taken the outline where they say, and this is the scene where we fall in love. Mm-hmm. And this is the scene where we go and do this without really selling it. It's like just suddenly these these things happen. It, it felt very, very, I don't know, thin. Ticket boxes by the sound of it. Mm. It's like, what, what, hap- what happened, do you think? I, I don't know. I think that's just. They've got what they need. They've got enough out of it. They hope that the director and the, and the stars will have enough charisma to... Carry it off. And yeah. the eye-poking CGI. Does it look mm. just garish all the way through? Like I think um, it does. Look, a lot of people don't, but I, I found it really garish. I don't know. It's, it's not as bad as Alice in Wonderland, and that's, and that's kind of the touchstone for these things. Gee, we're good, aren't we? It's like, Die Hard 5 is better than Die Hard 4. <laughs> this, uh, Oz is better than Alice in Wonderland. It's like... <laughs> It's like tuberculosis is better than cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Lower the standards. <laughs> Where are we at? But, like, I mean, and, and it's not just in terms of visuals, but um, uh, Alice in Wonderland completely misunderstood the point of of the books it was based on, whereas Oz the Great and Powerful kind of gets it. Mm. It's kind of mm. got, like, it's kind of on the right track. Now, it's not based on any of the books. No, it's, it's set books, before, before his books. Mm-hmm. I haven't read all of them, but, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's set before them. So is there any Sam Raimi at it at all? Yeah, there's a what I found at the time to be a very irritating uh, visual reference to Evil Dead. Okay. So I'm like, come on, earn it. <laughs> you can do better than this. Look, I mean, it, it's not all bad. The finale is actually quite good. I think the third act, which is rare for these films, usually they lose it in the finale. This mm. one loses it at the beginning and gets it back at the end. Uh, and Michelle Williams is just amazing. She she's so good in this. She's just got that that whole uh, Billy Burke, Glinda, good witch okay. thing going on. And uh, bafflingly, Tony Cox plays Samuel L. Jackson's role from Django Unchained. I don't know why, Brilliant. but a, that's as a house slave up yeah. in here. <laughs> seems to be what he's doing. It was a weird performance. <laughs> Uh, oddly enough, the, a film that I felt was more successful was Jack the Giant Slayer, the Brian Singer film, which has been, which looked terrible. Which is this year's delayed. John Carter in terms of cost and box yeah. office failure this year. And looked horrible. Yeah. Um, and maybe it was those lowered expectations that helped. Good cast, though. Yeah. I think you got Nick Holt and uh, Ewan McGregor and Ian mm. McShane and Stanley Tucci and... That's so, an amazing and Eddie Marsden. Yeah, really fantastic. Is he, Eddie Marsden looking dashing instead of what? creepy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a special effect in itself. Yeah. Um, look, I it, it doesn't have a lot of ambition. It's pretty much it just does what it says on the tin. Like, but that's the kind of singer's thing of late. He mm. like he doesn't aim for the stars. He aims for the ceiling, and by God, he gets there every time. Yeah. Yeah. There there are some problems with it. the only female character isn't really given much to do. She's kind of. She's a bit of a MacGuffin. Her, her her purpose is to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and does so. And there's one scene which kind of seems like it was written to be her big scene mm. and they give it to Jack. Oh, no. and I was like, oh, here we go. And Ouch. like, no, she really has nothing to do. Yeah. So that was a little irritating. But despite that, look, I thought it was fine. I haven't seen it. No. Yeah, <laughs> <all right. laughs> I well, know. we'll catch that one then. <laughs> all right, what about In the Fog? Yes. Slightly less in the fantasy retcon genre, more in the bleak Russian winter World War II <laughs> uh, genre. And this is 
I do have to do the usual disclaimer. This is a film released by Sharmil Films, of which my partner is the marketing manager for. You liked it, didn't you? You liked it as well. I did. I did. I, I, in fact, the first act of the film in particular, I was thinking Mm. this is going to be, this is so far my front runner for favourite film of the year. It just... Can I tell you why that surprised me? Because the film it most reminded me of, both, both in terms of style and theme, was Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which you didn't like. Yeah, but that, that seemed pointless to me. This was full of all primal. Like, Once a Time in Anatolia was literally 20-minute scenes of people standing around a field looking at things. I know, wasn't it great? This this film was primal from the instant get-go. It's this poor guy who's been accused of informing on his friends. Because the Germans captured him, hung his friends and let him go, mm-hmm. which, as, they, as a character calls it in the film, a different kind of death. Mm-hmm. Because now everyone in the village thinks he informed in order to survive and he's been ostracized by his community ostracized by his village even his wife has suspicions and basically it's him sort of coming um him coming home with his um son and uh the partisans turn up to execute him Mm. and so he's sort of walking along with them and the guy's performance is really really subtle and gives you all the information you want to know He's, he's a nice noble person who's always just trying to do the right thing and he's been caught in this situation and there's no easy way out of it and as we go through, we see in vignettes, uh, well, one, like, sort of, I guess, 20-minute slabs of each character's background, the, the, this guy and then the two partisans that are planning to execute him and their backgrounds. And it's so absorbing and, and like, beautifully shot and, and really, um, like, paced deliberately, but there's always... There is always momentum. There's always mm. something going on. There's always... Um, there's a lot of tension through it. There's a heap of yeah. tension. And, and the, um, the background stories are really interesting. Where I think it falls down, there is a, there's the third character, the, mm. the, the second partisan character, isn't as interesting as the other two. So he doesn't have as much to do. His background story isn't as tense or isn't as kind of gripping. It's not as strong as the first two, but I still found it quite... like I, I got into that story about halfway through it. Yep. I started to really get into, you know, what was ha- what was happening. Oh, so the first half didn't hook you as much? No, no, the first half of his story. Oh, okay, sure. But, yeah, I did love the first half of the mm. film as well. And, yeah, and I just I, I just thought this was another... It's interesting because we've, we've covered the war on film from so many angles, mm. but this is, some, this is something that we rarely see. It isn't about war as hell because we're having bullets shot around our ears. and It's like this is... More, we're kind of in Louis Marle territory here, mm. which is war as hell is because of the choices we had to make against our fellow man. Yeah, and the yeah, things that... within within communities. Yeah, That's very right. small communities where it's inescapable. You know, you've got you've got people, everyday people, having to participate in yep. the war and make really high stake choices. Mm. And moral choices and take sides. But but it's basically about how injustice will thrive in wartime, I Mm. think, about how being forced into this position forces you to kind of lose some of the values that hold society together, Mm -hmm. which which is, you know, a really strong theme to talk about and it's done so well in that ending without going into... Yeah. it's, It's one of those great endings which is both inevitable and... It's the William unpredictable. Gold- yeah, it's the William Goldman thing, isn't it? It's surprising yeah. yet inevitable. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's um and it's beautifully it's done. Gorgeous. Yeah. And yeah, it, it it's it's a pretty strong um, coda. Um, mm. Yeah, I was really impressed by this film. Not so impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you don't even know what we're going to next. It's just that's the automatic segue. <laughs> Is the incredible Burt Wonderstone? <laughs> 
Look, I say that it's a bit harsh. Um, mm. I only say that because it isn't as impressive as In the Fog, but it's not nearly as bad. They're basically as the same film, The Incredible Bert Wonderstone and In the Fog. Well, they are very totally. easy to compare. Um, you know, Steve Carell and Steve Buscemi um, and Jim Carrey in the world of magic mm. and World War Two Belarus. Yeah, uh, I I didn't think this film was nearly as bad as a lot of people have been painting it. It's yeah. very silly. It's very juvenile. I think, but it's not crude. No, I think there's stuff in the film, like some of the the, the treatment that's thrown the way of the the Olivia Wilde character, mm. um, who's a magician's assistant, and I think the the treatment that's thrown her way seems sexist, but I think that's the joke because if you look at the world of professional magicians, it's an extremely chauvinist structure. Yeah. It's like and part the of the story is him learning to not be sexist. Well, so that's, that's his journey. The protagonist sure. story is that he learns not to be sexist yeah. and to elevate her to a certain position. Mm. If you watch any of those magic secret specials or any Siegfried and Roy act, and it's all dudes doing the magic and it's all the, the assistant is an attractive girl who is basically window dressing. Mm. This is the world in which it's set. And I think the film takes the mickey out of that mm. really well. And I think it's one of its strengths. Yeah. He doesn't come off well for that. Like she's, no, at all. she's the most together character yeah. of the whole but it's look, I, I found it really, really funny. I actually laughed throughout, which I was not expecting going in. I, I thought maybe I'll get a couple of laughs out of it, but it really kept me going, and not just because Steve Buscemi absolutely steals the show and is wasted not doing comedy now. I've decided <laughs> he's just incredible. Like he, every expression I, he pulls. I loved Jim Carrey's uh, Chris Angel yeah. David Blaine mashup. Yeah, I love this career he's carving out with this and Kickass too. Now is this kind of gonzo foil to the hero mm. like this kind of you know sort of because he's always been known for the extreme physical kind of comedy and now he's sort of taking that to to the dark side of, of its extremes and i think that's really great um he's hilarious and and i love that he doesn't actually do any magic all his tricks are just about hurting himself yes <laughs> it's just all masochism yeah it's um, a great skewering of that modern magician yeah thing. and there's even like the name of his act is kind of a bit uh, but I understand what the joke is. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't I think know if it completely works. I but think it, it's fine. I yeah, think it's, but I yeah. think it wor- Like I think it works in terms of what it's satirizing. Mm. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. That's the target of the joke. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no. Look, I, I got to say, like, I wouldn't. Like, I, there's f- stuff about the plot I didn't really like. I don't, I don't think the lead characters needed to have a romance. I just didn't think that mm. that was necessary. Yeah, it just subtracts from everything else. There's a couple of other little things, but overall. Look, it's silly as hell. I won't shout from the rooftops, mm. but I thought it was fun. Mm. And is it, and, and you got a great cast being funny. And I've got to give a shout out to the horror film Mama, which uh, horror is not really my genre. It kind of takes a lot to, to win me over, and this absolutely did it. It's uh, from a first-time director called Andy Muschietti. Uh, it's based on his... Is he, t- is he played by Danny Trejo? or <laughs> Muschietti. <laughs> Spelled differently, Paul. Uh, it's based on his 2008 short. And it's one of those horror films that uses a lot of CGI, and yet it does it really well, which right. is quite surprising. It's really, really creepy. Really, really fantastic stuff. Um, I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, and uh, Rust and Bone. I just want to finish on, on this note, because everyone is loving this film. Everyone's absolutely flipping mm. for it. I think I'm the only one who didn't like it. It just his his films. Well, look, I'm I'm kind of crazy because I didn't like a prophet either. Jacques Audiard. Yeah, yeah. 
And his previous film, A Prophet, didn't really do it for me. This one I really disliked. Wow. I found the characters incredibly unpleasant to spend time with. I found the plot meandering, like the focus just kept changing and it didn't feel deliberate. It just felt rambling. Mm. And yeah, I just, I just found it Im- impossible to to connect with them. And I'm Katie kind Perry of... Perry's song didn't inspire you? No, I, I thought... I didn't think that was particularly well used either. I was, um, everyone's flipping for this film and, you know, I'm absolutely clearly in the minority. So, uh, so, you know, take my opinion with a grain of salt. And that's why people tune in here to uh, take our opinion with a grain of salt. Yeah. (laughs) So in our middle segment today, we're going to have a little bit of a talk about crowdfunding um, because... Last week, uh, the creator of Veronica Mars, the cult TV show about a teenage private eye, a guy named Rob Thomas, not to be confused with the lead singer from Matchbox 20, <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the show's star, Kristen Bell, have been trying to get a Veronica Mars movie spin-off up for years. And Warner Brothers have never really been interested, they've never seen the market in it, but the fans really, really wanted it. So in what is a rather unique situation... Uh, Thomas and Bell decided to go to crowdfunding site Kickstarter in order to raise some money to make it. And they got Warner Brothers' position, uh, permission to do it. Uh, as Warner Brothers still... The, the tricky thing is with this, that Warner Brothers still own the rights to the show. So they uh, had to ask Warner Brothers for the permission, if we get our two million target, can we make the movie? And Warner Brothers said, yeah, sure, go for it. Not really thinking much would come of it. The temperature has been well and truly taken. Within the day, they got their money. Within 24 hours, they hit $3 million. And suddenly, it's got everyone talking about Kickstarter and crowdfunding. And, you know, to this point, it had really only been used for independent projects. Some friends of ours raised uh, a a tidy sum for a uh, short film they were making based on a Terry Pratchett. Uh, short story, and yeah, mainly it's it's been the domain of, of super low budget indies to help raise parts of their budgets, and all of a sudden now we've got a fairly major sort of production, um, uh, raising all this cash, and it's it's really divided the the film community in terms of thoughts. A lot of people think, well, isn't this what crowdfunding is all about? It's to get people involved, it's to get um, the fans you know, sort of getting the movies made that they want made by made by the people they want to see them made by, if that makes any sense. Or, and, you know, and it's for everybody and people can search the site and look for the kind of projects they want to support. And other people sort of say, well, it's a way now for the studios to kind of farm it out to the public to pay for their lower-end product, which they're not interested in financing. Because uh, as we all know, the uh, the divide in studio financing has become ridiculous now and it just doesn't seem like the studios are willing to back anything that costs under 100 million or more than 10 where do you guys sit on all this i think it's both i think it's the beginning of the end of an old way of funding films but i think that it's a fantastic beginning for a new way of funding films and i think you know in in the situation with veronica mars like it is a fan-based film they knew that this was going to be a film which was going to be watched by fans and they they knew that it was you know Veronica Mars although their fans are very passionate and very loyal was one of the you know it was a low rated tv series mm. so i think they had like 60,000 fans yeah something that have that have backed it which is it which is amazing mm. in that situation it kind of is a low budget film do you know what i yep. mean and it is going to be you know a great opportunity you know for fans because 
sure they're not investors, but when you're talking about people pitching, I mean, the, the money that you can pitch in for something like Possible or Kickstarter is, you know, anywhere from about $25 to $100 or more if you're more generous. But it's like a donation, you know, yep. you're donating to a film that you personally do invest with because you are going to see it. But you mm. also yep. have the honour of having been a part of making something, which means that you're guaranteed some form of... Um, pleasure in the outcome yep the satisfaction, the satisfaction. voting happen. with your wallet you know you actually yeah. get to say what you want made yeah i look i there are some arguments i think are totally valid against this which is getting um making the fans pay over and over again and the fans aren't going to see a profit from this they're not going to have a mm. say in how the project goes so it's kind of it's a little cynical on the part of the studios i think to start using it but on the other hand uh, one of the one of the strong arguments against this has been that it's taking it away from indie filmmakers, and I got to say I don't think indie filmmakers really had control over what Kickstarter would be. I think it, it's useful to, for them if they have rich friends, if they have rich mm. friends of friends. But you, you mentioned uh, our friends at Snowgum mm. who broke the records in terms of amount of funding for a short film. Now they're indie filmmakers, but they were making a film. By, uh, based on a Terry Pratchett book. And Terry Pratchett was promoting it and Neil Gaiman was tweeting mm. about it. Yeah. And, you know, that wasn't a low-profile film. If it, that had been an original script, they would not have broken any records. Yeah. Um, so I think that the whole model of Kickstarter, I can't see a sustainable model of Kickstarter in which indie filmmakers get to make original films. It's just not going to happen. No, I think I there think is, but within, a, within a certain budget. Like, I think if you're making you know, films for $100,000, you could probably do it. And I don't... Well, I don't think the Veronica Mars thing is, is going to affect that. I don't think it's taking away... No. Because I don't think they had that the market cornered. Mm. No. They're still going to have their little corner of that world. Uh, and I think... I don't think that's going to change. But... Something like Kickstarter, a big studio, a corporation co-opting that was inevitable. It happens with everything. Yep. Mm. The moment something starts to work, the studios figure out how they can make it work for them. Mm. Not that this is a studio behind it. You know, I don't fault uh, Thomas or, or Bell for using this. No. But I think that this was always going to happen. I think, I mean, I think the nature of, you know, independent filmmaking is it's always going to be difficult to fund it. I don't think that that's anything that's different from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, yep. 30 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, it's just, it's always going to be difficult because you're an independent filmmaker yep. and you're starting out with nothing. And I think that that's actually often working with less actually makes you a lot more creative and there is actually a lot more satisfaction when a film like, for example, Mad Max, which was, you know, funded by George Miller and some of his friends, mm. you know, when they're borrowing money to make a film, which is incredibly low budget, that you have to be really creative. And it sort of seems like, you know, you wouldn't normally give an apprentice a lot of money. Mm. You know, you mm. have to work with what you have. And once you're, once you're, you know, you're confident working with the sort of cash that you have, then you can move into like these larger budget projects. Mm. But, you know, when you're just starting off, I don't think... I don't know. Does yeah. that, yeah. I, does I don't, seem kind of reasonable? I, and I don't seem like... That's the thing. Like People seem to kind of have this idea that Warner Brothers are going to try and finance $20 million films off the back of this. There's not the market to support that. No. There's not mm. the money from fans to support something like of that budget range. Yeah. And I, I get a little galled that the people are like, oh, well, these people are getting screwed by the studio and they're not going to see any money out of it. Well, it's like, well, 
do you think someone that puts $20 into a feature film is going to see any money out of it? You know what I mean? Like, mm. do you know how much money I think an executive producer of a film contributes to a film? It's yeah. not 20 bucks. Well, that's, <laughs> you know? that's the and thing. It's is like, like it's, it's, you like, and you're getting a reward. You're getting a T-shirt. You're getting a digital download of the film. And that's the thing. You're getting things that you would have to pay for down the line. Mm. Yeah. If you would, you know, you're getting a DVD, whatever. Plus, you're not actually losing money. You might not be investing yeah. money and making a profit, but you're not losing money. If you're putting in like $25 um, or you're putting, even if you're putting in like 80 bucks, yep. you know, this is not a huge amount of money compared to somebody who's investing $3 million. Yes, sure. But I, I, I think the, the point of view is like the studio, see, you know, that's a way for them to take even less risk. Like their sole uh, role is to give money to projects, and now they've found a way to not do that. But they have been control. doing it for a few years anyway. Because sure. now we've got German investment banks that bankroll films. We've got, you know, all sorts of European consortiums that that finance films, and then basically studios pick up the distribution tab. This has been happening more and more, and this is just another way of doing it. To me, this just seems like a fan. Like it's the same. I don't see a lot of difference between Veronica Mars and Trollbridge. The, the snow gum short. Mm. The only difference is Veronica Mars has a distribution deal already. Yeah. Mm. That's, to me, it's just, it's a fan film on a grand scale. And if Thomas and Bell really want to do this, why not use this to their advantage and bust the flood? And, you know, rather than, I'd rather this than, I mean, that's the thing. I think the fans would rather stump up, you know, 40 bucks or whatever for the, for the Kickstarter mm. and then $20 or $15 for a ticket mm. rather than spend the next 20 years talking about gee, when are Warner's going to make a Veronica Mars movie on the internet? Mm. But at the same time, I do think that they, will, they absolutely will try, whether they'll be successful or not, studios will try to get people to fund their other films this way. Oh, of course they will. And I think, sure. they'll, and I think, I think that's why I think people, they'll hit the ceiling on that. I think that's why people think it's the beginning of the end. And yet, I, I, yeah, I think that it'll level out. I think it'll, they'll find a, a happy medium where they work out how much they can get out of people. Yeah. I'm just not outraged because I think from the moment Kickstarter started, this was exactly where it was going to go. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, too, like, again, I think the great thing about sites like Kickstarter and Possible and Indiegogo is it gives the audience a choice. Mm. So, like, it's not just going to become the domain of big-budget projects. You know, your indies can still get up there and advertise, and it's not like one, you know, it's not like one is bigger than the other, you know what I mean? You, you, put a, you can search horror. You can search independent. You can put in whatever you want into that search engine and look for the kind of projects that you're interested in. Whether you invest in Veronica Mars or Trollbridge or your friend's project or whatever, it's up to the consumer. I don't know what the figures are, but I would think that there is a small percentage of people who go searching for things to give money to. And the, I would assume oh, yeah, that the majority of people who give money are the ones who get told about a specific project. Yep. Uh, just... Just to clarify that divide. Yeah, yeah, but I don't yeah. think that changes the landscape. Sure. Like, because I think that, if anything, this makes people more aware mm. of what a Kickstarter or Possible is. And people who may have gone, who friends of friends who are making films, might have looked at it a year ago and gone, oh, what's that? I don't know what that is. I don't want to just give up my money. Whatever I get. And now that this has happened, it gives it more exposure. It makes it seem more legitimate. Mm. And will maybe have a bit of a trickle-down effect for independent filmmakers. Because suddenly when you tell... You know, people of the older generation who may not have heard of it before this hit the news. Now, this has heard of it, they might be more a little more amenable to giving money to it. I mean, I don't know. It's all intangibles at this point, but I think there's so much more possibility here than 
the end, the beginning of the end. Oh yeah, I mean the other thing is like if you look on the Veronica Mars on their Kickstarter website, you know Rob Thomas has this big sort of page about you know all the the process that he had with Warner Brothers and 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 the team with making it. So it, it's made it a lot more transparent with mm. the filmmaking process mm. to actually communicate with fans to let inform them of exactly what the costs are, where it is, um, you know, in production, what's happening. And, and I, think, I think that's great. Mm. And I, I think it bodes really well for my Sequest DSV film. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll, and we'll post the Kickstarter link to that on the site. <laughs> so, Kate, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. <laughs> I've picked the Swedish director, Roy Anderson. Very good. Now, I have to ask, because this podcast is out on uh, the 31st of March, did you deliberately pick him because today is his 60th birthday? No, I didn't. Did you know that? <laughs> no, I yeah, didn't. 60 today. Happy birthday, Roy <laughs> Happy Anderson. Happy birthday, Roy Happy Anderson. Happy birthday. And I think it's Anderson. I, I, I was Anderson. Anderson. Swedish pronunciation as well. Yeah, I know, but if I did that, I would just sound like a dick. And then everyone would be like, why is she saying it so funny? (laughs) Is she she Scottish? Is she Sean Connery? Roy Anderson. What's what's her deal? (laughs) No, it is. You're right. It's Roy Anderson. Now, you've set a bit of a for hyphen its record. Hello? Because this is, how many podcasts have we done? 35? 34 34 or something, 34, 35. You picked the first filmmaker Lee had not heard of. Yes. You're serious? I, I totally wasn't going to mention that on air, so thanks, Paul. Oh. I was going to pretend he, uh, yeah, I've spent years going through his stuff. No, uh, uh, quite honestly, when you chose him, I did had not heard of him. You said, fuck. Yeah. No, I was like, are, are you sure? What is he, some TV movie director? How could, <laughs> I, have, how could I have not heard of him? Some minnow. And, and, and then looked him up and thought, actually, how have I not heard of him? Look at what he's done. Look at yeah, what he's achieved. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what is he to you? When did you discover him? Do you, you know what's really funny? I actually only discovered him last year. Um, mm. I was doing a short film uh, with a couple of friends of mine from VCA and one of them, the DOP, Josh Aylett. I've lived in Norway and he's lived in Sweden and we were talking about how much we adore Scandinavia and we adored, you know, Scandinavian sort of aesthetic, style, sense of humour and we, we just got to chatting about like things that we loved about it and he said, oh, you know, have you, have you ever seen Roy Anderson's um, films? And it was sort of like a light bulb moment for me because I think that he kind of, in a way, like, you know, obviously I have a lot of director's work that I really, really, really adore but for me, his work kind of nails or ticks every kind of box that I like in terms of his visual style, in terms of the the stories that he writes about the characters or, the, you know, the actors that he uses. And um, and I guess the sort of, yeah, the, the, the sense of humour particularly. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's natural, it's naturalism, but it's not boring, or at least his earlier work was. His first feature film, um, A Swedish Love Story, I think is just exquisite. I love directors that use great ensemble casts. Mm. I love the fact that he uses these, you know, these long lens shots and he has, for me, it's like a director who is sort of directing a film almost the way life is kind of experienced. You know, often, you know, often filmmaking is about, you know, it's, um, you know, a film can be a bit like a dream or it's a bit dreamlike. But for me, his films are 
very much if you walk into any kind of crowded room and you just eavesdrop mm. on different conversations that are going on, you'll pick up you'll pick up half a conversation, but you'll feel like you've almost you only need a little glimpse of it, but you feel like you've sort of experienced a great story, mm. even though it's broken, even though it's interrupted. And you you know, and it's it's also it's completely endless as well. I love the fact that within every single shot you know, there are so many characters moving through it that the protagonists get consistently distracted, mm. interrupted. Mm. You know, it's not a story. It's not a linear, you know, beginning, middle and end kind of story. It's it's almost like the films themselves are like a jigsaw puzzle and pieces just fall into place and he just shows you this scene and then he shows you this scene. And within each of those scenes, the characters themselves even if they're not a main character, are interesting. Every single shot is interesting. And it's, it's you know, people's behaviour, it's completely effortless. It's not stylized in a sort of a theatrical kind of sense. It's not heightened. It's just sometimes it's utterly ridiculous. Mm. Sometimes it's as simple, it's incredibly simple. It's, it's, it's watching a young boy who's got like a flower or a leaf in his hand and he's mm. just sort of like stroking the back of his sister's leg and yeah, she's yeah. sort of yeah, slapping yeah. him. But it's, it's just those moments. It's, it's, it's a collage of so many moments put together um, and it's just incredibly um, priceless. You know, it's mm. just it's beautiful, beautiful work. There's some wonderful observation in yeah. there. Um, yeah, I really like what you're saying, like overheard conversations and a jigsaw puzzle. Like that, that sums it up perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. He's got such a great geography when he'll just place a lot of things going on in the one scene and just sort of follow them around. And you, yeah. you sort of come in on one bit and then go out and then come in on another bit. And it's very something very real about that. You don't realise how two-dimensional most of cinema is God, until yeah. you see him do that. Yeah, until you see him do it, you don't realise, you know, like, like, God, he's actually capturing what life is. You know, mm. life doesn't begin when you walk into a room with the elevator doors just opening and the character coming out. Yeah. Life begins waiting for the elevator door, <laughs> elevator yeah. to come down to descend. <laughs> and then the whole process of waiting for it to open and then the revelation of people coming out and then, you know, so he, or, or, or things like, you know, just because characters finish a conversation with other, or dialogue with other characters doesn't mean that that's end scene for them. Mm. That's the thing. There's always this feeling that all these stories are part of a bigger world. Yeah. I find it interesting that his first three shorts, Visiting One's Son in 67 to Fetch a Bike, in 68 and Saturday, October the 5th in 69, are they don't really indicate like the type of filmmaker he's going to be. They're all great Not shorts, all. especially to fetch a bike I really loved. But um, they're very observational. They're very, mm. um, you know, human interaction. They seem a bit French New Wave inspired to me. Yeah. And even though he brings that to his first big film, A Swedish Love Story in 1970, it's still, he brings a whole new thing to that. It's like with A Swedish Love Story, he suddenly hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that, yeah, as you say, it's such an extraordinary film. The way, and it's such a real depiction of young love about the, you know, the awkwardness, the inexplicable behaviour. Is it ever? It was like, what is it? It's like halfway through the film before they even look like they're about to talk to each other. But you never actually hear them mm. say anything. They just mm. move towards each other. But it is, it's, it's that wonderful... What's great about it is that, you know, it's completely oblivious and completely mm. uninteresting to the adult world, yeah. which is completely juxtaposed against, you know, you've got something, you've got this building momentum, this awkwardness, the tension mm. between the two 15-year-olds. Mm. 
and then you've got the that's completely you know the next scene is their parents yep. screwing um, saloon doors mm. onto <laughs> their lounge room and everybody commenting on how stupid they look. Yeah. And it's this completely we're not. It's interesting because we're not invited to laugh at the kids. In fact, that mm. you know, there there's a suggestion that theirs is the most pure relationship in the whole film. Mm. I think part of that is in the sound, both diegetic and non-diegetic. Whenever the young lovers are together, you hear this beautiful love music, mm-hmm. and whenever the adults are together, there's this plodding, like almost <laughs> annoying sound. Like <laughs> it's this like marching band music or something but really badly done and it's he's pretty much yeah just inserted that in the soundtrack saying yeah no, the, the younger kid, the younger ones have got it right it's interesting isn't yeah. it because it's almost it, it's poignant it, it, it lends a poignancy to the whole thing because it's this is the future that awaits these kids mm. these yeah. kids yeah. have this wonderful pure relationship and they have this nice love beginning and you just see how incredibly unhappy all of their parents are in different ways and the social because and class differences. Yeah, because they've, their pressures or their decisions, the choices that they've made in life have gradually fucked them up, yeah. for want of a better word. Mm. And, 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 you know, and especially with, you know, the John character, one of the, the, mm. the young girl, um, Annika's father, mm. right at the end when he... Sort of goes missing. Mm. Um, where where has, have they? Where he has a brain snap. Where he has a brain snap. <laughs> that that line, like, <laughs> where have they been fishing? Yeah. I mean, that that whole ending, the calling out blindly in the fog and what that represents. It, I was, I was astonished. Like my jaw was just wow. completely yeah. open throughout that last you know fifteen minutes. Yeah. What's incredible about it is you know you've got you've got the adults and they're wearing almost the cra- it's a crayfish party and they're yeah. wearing these ridiculous bibs. Mm. And they look like babies. They look and like children. And they've got the children. little party hats right. as well. And the little party hats. Yeah. And they yeah. look like these, they've turned into these um, gigantic toddlers who are mm. spoiled and have thing? lost kind of. I want the fridge. Oh, yeah. But we don't need it. But I want it. Yeah. I want yeah. it. Yeah. And like the, the scene, the, the bit where the guy just gets up and punches the woman from across the table. And she goes off and nothing's made of it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> these these screwed up relationships. He's just yeah, he's very up. cruel about the adults in that la- you mm. know, and you know, possibly rightly so. But like yeah, particularly in the end of that film, it's like yeah, it's mm. it's it's really strong, really, and really made strong. to look juvenile in the worst ways. Whereas the kids are made to look juvenile in the purest way, yeah. which is an interesting contrast. But he felt a lot of pressure after that to make. Another film that I think because of the success of that, it was quite a big hit, wasn't it? Mm. It was a huge, it was a huge hit, and he didn't want to repeat himself. And I think he he had a lot of ideas for films which he didn't go with, but then finally in 1975 made Gilly Up, mm. which is a completely different film, mm. which I think might be colloquial Swedish for "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> it <laughs> it was a bit of a flop. Had no idea. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and as you say, it was as big a flop as. A Swedish love story was a hit. Mm. It was kind of heaven's gate to to a Swedish love story as a deer hunter. He yeah. was pretty angry at at how it got received, and he, and he blamed the audiences for not quite getting it. And look, there's a part of me that does have sympathy for that because I think there's a lot in there that you re- you really have to focus to find. It's very very distancing. It keeps you at an arm's length. And I have to say, it's an entertaining film. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, at no it's, point was I bored. It's not but, an uninteresting even even the idea. I mean, mm. where you've got like a love story, all of the characters, it's it's summer. They're mm. full of life. It's beautiful. It's it's all about that. You've got these characters in Gilead who are empty mm. and it's run down and it's depressing. But I think the problem is, is that you have to enjoy 
two hours of it mm. and it's incredibly slow yeah. and there's a lot of scenes where absolutely nothing happens and it's you sort of it's really interesting and, and you can't fault the performances the no. performances are brilliant even the, the lead idea I love the lead is amazing so, I couldn't take mm. my eyes off him he was really charismatic I love Every the other dude Count he was great oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's like Got his own little underground resistance against Christ knows what <laughs> happening. <laughs> he just like he seems to have watched like grown up on a diet of World War Two movies and just decided he's this character. He's this, you know, he's Paul Henry from Casablanca. Because he's got he's nothing concerned. else to do. Exactly, and like, and that's his entire, you know, <laughs> that's his entire life. He just goes to bars with his little cadre, and you know, mm. sleeps yeah. with women and and you know, passes embassies and thinks he's pulling off these kind of daring anarchist. But we never really know what he's fighting for. We have yeah. no idea, and I don't think he has. No I idea don't think causes. he. I don't think he is actually fighting for anything. I think he is just a lost soul mm. in a rundown place who actually has no direction. He doesn't know what to do except that he's just filling time and, you know, and off in his own fantasies and imagination, of course, which ends quite tragically. It's a, well, it's a great ending. I mean, that he always knows how to end his films, mm. regardless of how well the film does. The ending, he always sticks the landing. Mm. But i got to say, Terrence Malick has got nothing, mm. nothing on Anderson because yeah. 25 years till he made his next feature. <laughs> now, in the meantime, he did do... There are a couple of shorts that come later. He made um, uh, a lot of TV commercials. Brilliant commercials. So funny. Brilliant, Some 400 commercials. commercials, apparently. Yeah, and they're so, they're so elaborate. They're these pre-CGI, like... There's a lot of there's an indication of the films he's going to make later because it's all it's generally one locked off shot, yeah, <laughs> something mundane happening for most of the thing, and then a massive impossible stunt at the end, <laughs> yeah, so droll but so funny, and that that yeah it really informs his later features, but yeah, and then his um his short something happened in 1987 and World of Glory in 1991. Uh, and Something Happened was a film about uh, AIDS that was meant to be shown to school kids, and they thought it was too dark. Right. They, uh, but it's actually funny, like, at times. Like, it's really serious. It's funny. It's not inappropriate. Uh, and, and it's a really interesting film, but World of Glory, which is also known as Lovely is the Earth, is a guy staring at the camera telling his life story as we see it behind him. And he had family <laughs> members in concentration camps, and it gets that, that opening scene is basically just his family members getting loaded onto a truck and the exhaust is then fed into the truck and you see the truck oh. drive off and it's just horrific. And he turns as the Nazis are doing that. He just turns and looks at you in the in the eye, like right down the barrel and then turns back to watch it. And that it's such a powerful image mm. and a real indication of when he eventually came back to features uh, in 2000 with Songs from the Second Floor. It's pretty much that style that he's running with. Mm. And it's, it's a huge leap <laughs> in terms of style because, yeah. you know, you, you see um, obviously the films from the 70s and then you go into a film which was made, I think it was 2000? 2000, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, with a kind of a sort of pastel palette mm. and characters that are wearing sort of like this sort of grotesque kind of makeup. Yeah, it's like white face paint on everybody. Mm. I, was, I was wondering, has anybody heard anybody refer to this film as a zombie film? Because it feels like a zombie art film. Yeah. It's like all of these people, it's like z sentient zombies just going through what they know to be life. Yeah. And occasionally someone attempts to break out of it. And they all look like the undead. 
and they all move like the undead. But I think that because he's saying, because it's not a zombie film, mm. he's sort of saying, well, no, I mean, it's almost like he's saying, you know, this is, this is modern life. This mm. is the world we're in today. You know, and we've almost become the undead. And that's a theme the he does, he continues in his next film. Mm. But it, like what I got from Songs of the Second Floor uh, was it was kind of like Python's meaning of life. It was if it was a Swedish existentialist drama. <laughs> yeah. And I actually thought that in the beginning before we got to the scene it was almost identical to um, the Crimson Permanent Assurance <laughs> and the cliff scene, throwing off the cliff. I mean there were yeah. scenes later that are just right out of Python. Yeah. And yeah, I, like it, it's basically like a sketch drama film. Mm. If, if yeah. such a thing can again, exist. it's like you're yeah. saying with the moment he overheard conversations and the jigsaw puzzle, all of which forms his plan. I honestly couldn't work out. I I, I was genuinely wondering whether they were in the afterlife. Well, whether I, the second floor was the like that yeah, was the title. Oh, right, the second yeah. floor is the afterlife, because or whether they were in the present. I mean, I remember there was one thing that I was I was interested in doing, which I didn't do, but I was interested in going through, like counting how many times. I saw a character lying in bed or sitting on bed on a bed doing nothing or sitting in a chair doing nothing in that mm. film because mm. it seemed like every single scene there was somebody lying in bed doing yeah. nothing. <laughs> the hundred-year-old guy in a cot. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, it's such a, it's so interesting to to you know I mean we talk about it being like a sort of a Swedish existentialist <laughs> film because mm. you like when you look when you compare to the pace of life, mm. the the actors that he used, what he has to say about um, life in in 1970 or 1975 compared to now where you've got, I mean, especially the second film, um, it's, it's like a, as depressing as it is, it's not even half as depressing as his film in 2000, mm. Songs from the Second Floor, mm. because you've got these characters who are almost living in their own bubble. They're actually not... They're not communicating with... They're living in a concrete jungle. They are overweight. They... They're in traffic that never goes anywhere. You know, I think so. I read somewhere that, like, there was a really great quote about how it's, like, characters are moving forward, wanting to go somewhere, but actually nobody's going anywhere. Mm. Everyone's just sort of um, kind of plateauing in limbo. Nothing's moving forward. That's the thing. It it gave me a real purgatory feel, which Mm. was why I was thinking. And and they're all acting like a real life they used to know and that none of them were ever advancing or getting out of there. And I just, it just had this. Happiness is elusive. uh, Yeah. It's, it it wasn't until after I watched the film, I was looking at at some stuff on the internet and I saw a quote that called it, um, described songs from the second floor as shortcuts meets night of the living dead, which I thought was a perfect example. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. I think he's much more on that message in 2007 with you, the living. Cause I mean, that title is so accusatory. Like, yeah. I find that mm. such a powerful, like he's pointing the finger at us and he's saying, yeah. this is what your life is. Yeah. You guys are squandering. And you it. might as well say the living in inverted commas. Yeah. You yeah. Well, are living. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I love the fact that the, the opening scene from if you, even if you don't want to watch an entire film by Roy Anderson, you have to watch the opening scene with the the larger woman who's sitting on a park bench. Oh yeah, and that's right. She's she's overweight and she's you know in in she's she's basically contemplating suicide. She keeps saying you know nobody understands me, nobody understands me, and her boyfriend is nearby holding her dog, and you know he's 
trying to have a conversation with her, trying to say, you know, you know, I love you, blah, 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 blah. But she's so self-absorbed mm. that she's actually not listening to And him. he's even saying the dog loves you. And she's like, that's not no, right either. No, yeah. it's not true. It's not true. And it sort of, that sort of sets it up for the rest of the film where you have all of these characters dreaming about fantasies, about life and how happy it would be and how amazing and how much better it would be but actually not engaging in the life that's all around them, not mm. talking. Mm. There are these, you know, couples having sex, but actually not having sex with each other. Yeah, there's no connection happening. No connection. Yeah. Mm. There's a lot of talk about dreams. Lots mm. of dreams. Lots of, there's a lot of Nazi imagery for some reason, yeah. like an SS tattoo or swastika on the, you know. This, oh, the tablecloth. The tablecloth. Oh, my God. That's such a great set piece. Yeah. Part of what's, what's shocking about it is how unshocked the characters are by it. It's like mm. a character can show the Nazi um, symbol and yet all the characters will not bat an eyelid. Mm -hmm. Nobody's shocked. Or a character gets beaten up in the street and a whole bunch of people are waiting at a bus stop, which is actually in um, uh, songs from the second floor. Mm. But a whole bunch of people will watch that happening and nobody will twitch, move a muscle. Mm. Yeah. Do it's almost like it. he deserved it. Yeah. What's he doing here? Mm. Nobody cares. Yeah. Everyone's just living in their own little little bubble. And he actually reuses some of the jokes from his commercials. You know, it's that there are like there are some jokes here and there from his from his TV work that made their way into his films because I think he, he must have thought, oh, that was too good to waste on an ad. <laughs> I'm going to put that into my film. But they're all. I mean, his shots are so exquisitely composed. Mm, you know, that yeah. last shot of songs from the second floor is oh, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. That? Yeah. It's one of the greatest final shots ever. Like, particularly when all of a sudden everyone stands, all these people in the field stand up. You yeah. have no idea they were there. Well, no, God, yeah, no, you no. see these figures walking, like from the style of the shot, you see figures in the distance oh, walking up, and you think, I know what this is going to be. I can already see where he's going with that. And then he surprises you again. He springs yeah. something else on you. It's, um, his, his mise en scene is quite incredible. Mm. Like, the amount of stuff he packs into a frame and his composition is just startling. And I think that's kind of. His kind of number one skill set yeah. in terms of, of technical filmmaking. And, and finding humour in some of the most, you know, I mean, part of his humour, not only is it sort of dry and droll, but it's also the humour in just accidents, accidents happening and how fucking funny. Mm -hmm. You know, things like, um, you know, and this is quite sacrilegious, but, you know, the crucifix with Jesus and one of the nails yeah. is off and so... The, the body of Jesus is just, just swinging there and looking, looking like an ape yes. swinging on a, on a branch. And it's just it's so offensive and so funny. And it's, <laughs> yeah. And says so much at the same time. Yeah. It's, um, it's almost, you almost can't be offended by it because it's such a it's, simple gag. Yeah. But it's so effective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's great. But those are, those are part of a trilogy, aren't they? You know, they're the first two parts of a proposed trilogy. Mm. The I third part of which is coming out in 2014. Yeah, you all know? seven years apart, weirdly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah the... Um, and, I, and it's got a hell of a title. Oh, a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. <laughs> so not an action film, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, so. He says it's going to be stylistically different. Oh, really? Uh, he says he wants to go in a, a very different uh, direction with it than his last two films, but it's still going to have the same themes, I guess, uh, to connect connect the three together, so... It's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to that one a lot. Well, I hope, I hope this time, you know, it's shown in some of our cinemas so we'll actually get to see it on the big screen. Yeah. That would be nice. That would be nice. Mm. I know You the Living got a really brief release out here, possibly, mm. you, know, you know, a couple of art house cinemas and then sort of shuffled off. But mm. um, 
yeah, he's, his work warrants more attention because he's he's really... It's it's funny and it's smart mm, as yeah. well. And it, it is. It's, and it's so distinctive. Exquisite. Yeah. And exquisite. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us and introducing me to the works of Roy Anderson. Thank you. And check out more Swedish films. They're awesome. Sweden rocks. And we'll see the rest of you next month. I can't speak Swedish. Thank <laughs> you.